In this first episode of the Futures of Work podcast, I was joined by Jennifer Bear, an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Virginia and Institute for Advanced Studies Benjamin Mika Visiting Professor here at the University of Bristol. Among other things, we discuss the emergence of global supply chains as one of the most distinctive features of the transforming world of work and the challenges and opportunities they create for labour governance and organisation. So Jennifer, it's great to have you uh, here on the show. I was wondering if you could just first tell us a little bit about uh, your research in general. Sure, thanks, and I'm happy to be here. I work mostly in the area of trade and development, and I'm really interested in how the emergence of global supply chains, or what we sometimes call in the academic literature global value chains or global production networks, create new opportunities but also new challenges for developing countries and in particular for firms and workers in developing countries. So I'm interested in things like trade agreements and the degree to which they do or don't provide uh, certain kinds of protections for labor standards. Uh, And I'm interested in these questions that you raised about the responsibility of various sort of stakeholders in the supply chain, the big global brands or multinationals, national governments, international institutions, um, and then ultimately, of course, um, you know, workers and work representatives like trade unions and consumers themselves at the end of the chain. So your, your Benjamin Meeker lecture here at the University of Bristol was entitled Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Mm-hmm. So in regards to the labour standards, what in this case is the rock and the hard place? What we caught sort of between here? Yeah, so I think that when you look at the whole debate around labor standards and global supply chains, on the one hand, you've seen at least since really the late 80s and early 90s, when you had some of the first big kind of uh, sweatshop scandals involving brands like Nike or Gap, you know, there's a growing awareness that there is a problem. um, And brands have tried to respond to those concerns by creating essentially different kinds of corporate social responsibility mechanisms. And so they're asking, increasingly, they're asking their suppliers of things like uh, T-shirts and shoes and electronics and other kinds of um, particularly light manufacturers to do a better job in enforcing um, often just sort of the basic legal minimum standards in those countries. Um, On the other hand, there's a lot of commercial pressures, um, commercial pressure in these chains. And so at the same time that suppliers are being asked to do a better job um, in terms of complying with labor standards, they're constantly being asked, in a sense, to do more for less, right? So there's a constant sort of downward pressure on the prices that these global brands are uh, looking to pay. Um, And there's a lot of pressure in terms of um, delivery time. Um, And so that's kind of the rock and the hard place, right? On the one hand, trying to push for higher standards or maintaining certain minimum standards, um, and at the same time, you know, trying to comply with the pressures of global competition in a context where these sorts of multinationals, you know, at least, again, in certain kinds of industries, aren't necessarily making investments in these developing countries. They are bringing their, uh, their business there. They're placing orders with local suppliers. And of course, you know, they're sort of scanning the globe Um, looking for always new sources of supply and therefore when costs go up, you know, and generally speaking, labor standards do cost money, right? Mm. So when prices go up, you know, suppliers look at the sort of trade-off between trying to meet these standards and at the same time trying to, you know, remain competitive. And so has there been any indication that these multinational companies, are they kind of like fly-by-night capitalism here? Are, Are they, as soon as 
labour standards are improved or labour yeah. costs go up, are these particularly within your research within sort of the garment manufacturing sectors and stuff like that, are they upping their factories and moving? Is there any indi indication there that that uh, that increased and improved labour standards perhaps through local governance yeah. actually forces these multinationals or forces or at least uh, you know they're they're kind of kind of motivated yeah, yeah sure. exactly like incentivized motivated to go somewhere else yeah I mean it's really hard to paint um, a very very um, general picture right because there are so many different kinds of, of companies and I think that there are some good players out there that are really trying to figure out how to grapple with these issues in a, in a kind of more meaningful way. At the same time, they're all playing essentially, right, sort of um, in the same general field, which is the global economy. And these competitive pressures are real and they, you know, sort of affect everyone. Um, I think, you know, some brands are uh, experimenting with new kinds of governance when it comes to the issue of labor standards um, and there are some kind of promising developments there we'll probably talk about the accord mm -hmm. um, I think in general you know one of the one of the questions we have to ask is you know given that there are these competitive pressures in the global economy and given that you know ultimately multinationals global brands have to respond to them are we really content to leave this question of labor standards to the realm of a kind of voluntary um, compliance strategy mm -hmm. like at least traditionally corporate social responsibility has been or do we need other kinds of governance or other kinds of regulation to essentially kind of set a floor um, under which you know we won't allow those kind of pressures of global competition to sort of push push standards and push wages and working conditions yeah because i guess as, as as a consumer often you see you know these brands appear in the newspapers hit the headlines you know primark or yeah. whatever is producing in this factory and there's and there's been child labor or Nike yeah. and you know you hit these these scandals hit the headlines but how much is it worth us kind of focusing purely on these brands yes. these yeah. big name brands for example yeah I mean one of the problems I think with the traditional kind of um, what I call like sweatshop scandal cycle mm. is that first of all you tend to get these sorts of um, scandals around a particular set of issues what are sometimes called the zero compliance issues child labor is you know definitely probably um, one of the major concerns. Um, forced labor might be another one. Mm -hmm. um, really catastrophic industrial disasters like the Rana Plaza building collapse. So you know, kind of headline making, sort of um, sort of terribly shocking, right? Sorts of abuses or violations. Um, the problem is that you know the vast majority of um, labor violations and supply chains involve what we might think of as kind of more mundane things, right? Really excessive overtime, for mm -hmm. example, you know, uh, failure to comply with the minimum wage laws, more kind of uh, routine issues around health and safety than the kind of dramatic fires or collapses that we've seen in the Bangladesh context. Um, and those things don't make the headlines, right? So one problem is that there's just a whole world of supply chain kind of problems that, um, that aren't going to make the news uh, and the consumers simply aren't going to be aware of. Mm. Um, so that's one problem. I think the other problem is that um, the you know, brands are really important players in supply chains, but there's a lot of links in the supply chain that don't necessarily directly involve any kind of clearly identifiable brand, mm. right? So for example, we think about something like 
um, clothing, right? There's lots of discussion about the responsibility of a company, a company like H&M or the gap for uh, conditions in the supply chain in terms of the apparel production. But of course, there's lots of other inputs coming into that chain, right? The cotton, for example, mm. often, or uh, the thread. Um, and so one of the problems, I think, again, with this tendency to think in terms of a kind of consumer-driven um, logic looking at leveraging really identifiable lead firms and brand names is that that's kind of the you know the tip of the iceberg in terms of the world of uh, of global supply chains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think some of some of your own research as well has also looked at like issues to do with something like freedom of association, yes. which is if you think about in terms of uh, as consumers or even sort of conscious consumers yep. that something like child labour forced labor, you know, that does hit the headlines, you know, exactly. because and people don't want yes. children to be making their clothes or, or children to be, you know, picking their coffee beans or whatever, or their tea right. or, or whatever it might be. But um, when it comes to something like freedom of association, you say, well, these workers don't have access to a trade union. Right. It doesn't carry that necessarily that same kind of gravitas or emotional response that, that something like child labor does. So what do you think, you know, do consumers then, uh, like, do they have a role to play here? Sure, I think they have a role to play, um, but I think you know sometimes we err on putting a, a lot um, of responsibility on consumers, mm-hmm. and there's two problems with that. One, of course, is that um, you know consumers are busy, um, and so it's it's asking a lot, I think, um, of someone to you know go into a store and then somehow you know sort of do a, a bunch of research mm-hmm. um, about what they're going to buy and the and the conditions under which. Um, that product was made, even assuming, which is usually an erroneous assumption, that such information is available in the mm-hmm. first place, right? So there's just a lack of transparency about the conditions under which the goods and services we consume are produced that um, that make it really, I think, impossible to have a fully right kind of consumer-oriented um, approach to these problems. The other major problem, aside from the kind of the, the constraints um, in terms of time um, and information, is that you know ultimately the ability to you know in a sense vote with your dollar uh, or pound uh, you know is limited by how many dollars and pounds you have right and so I think we you know we have to be aware that in certain niches of the market um, where maybe uh, you're targeting consumers based on claims about ethical production you know there might be a little more room there um, to uh, to go with the kind of really kind of consumer-driven model. But usually we're talking about um, mass market production, right? And if we believe that there are certain minimum labor standards that should be um, provided to every worker, then it shouldn't matter if that worker is, you know, Mm. working on a fair trade coffee, uh, you know, sort of farm or in a kind of um, more mass market, right, sort of industrial coffee production. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so if so, if consumers are not the answer in terms of like these, you know, these newer actors yeah. that have come into the kind of the, the governance uh, game or whatever we want to call it, what about sort of the traditional actors then? So, for example, trade unions. Right. Um, within a lot of these countries, such as Bangladesh, for example, trade union membership yes. is re- relatively low, yeah. and workers don't necessarily have the sort of structural and associational power as unions do, for example, in right. the EU. Right. So what have you found in your research in terms of uh, the, the role of both national and these also these international global union federations yeah. as well? That's a nice segue, actually, um, because I think one of, the, one of the ways that perhaps consumers can make the most meaningful difference is by uh, supporting, basically, workers and worker organizations um, in producing countries 
and uh, you know, instead of developing kind of joint strategies, that's something that we've seen, for example, in the Bangladesh case, um, there were some uh, really, really um, active kind of NGOs that were already doing work around uh, workers' rights and labor standards in Bangladesh, and, uh, and they were really working to support local organizing in a way that I think produced some really interesting kind of responses to the to the Rana Plaza crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, in some countries, of course, you know, there are relatively strong um, independent trade unions, but in many of the developing countries that are playing a role um, in these supply chains, there, you know, there are not. Um, and so then the question is, you know, what kinds of what kinds of supply chain strategies can be brought to bear to maybe create a space um, for workers to, to do some organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, clearly here there's a role for something like the International Labor Organization, the ILO, um, and, uh, and sort of their role in trying to ensure compliance with international conventions around labor standards. There's clearly a role for um, the developing country governments themselves, right? And to be clear, it's not always developing countries that are struggling mm-hmm. with labor standards compliance, right? There's plenty of uh, countries also, you know, in the global north that um, where these problems, you know, occur. Um, but clearly, governments um, have to be kind of part of this conversation, right? Um, ultimately, governments are the ones who are responsible, for example, um, for having in place a framework, hmm. right, of labor law, um, and uh, and so they have to be part of the search for solutions. And then I think importing governments, right, um, or the governments of importing countries. Have a role to play, um, and you know a body like the European Union. So there is a, a program, basically, or a, a regime um, called the Generalized System of Preferences. It's been a long, around a long time that provides developing countries with certain sorts of um, incentives to export to developed country markets um, and get sort of concessionary um, sort of terms to access those markets, and those trade privileges are supposed to be contingent on compliance with labor standards. Um, and so the question is, well, you know, is that being enforced uh, in the importing countries? Is there a way that that um, kind of carrot and stick structure could be used more effectively, right, to, to sort of push for um, Im- improved enforcement um, of labor standards? So there's a, you know, there's a complex set of actors in the supply chain world. There's a complex set of actors that need to be, need to be part of the search for uh, solutions. And I think we've um, tended to look increasingly at these big global brands, um, in part because, you know, folks feel like you can get leverage Mm. over companies that are reputation sensitive and have, you know, big investments in kind of their brand name and their corporate image. And that's great. Um, But, you know, ultimately they are uh, a critical but one part of the of the solution. And we have Mm. to look uh, more broadly at the role of other uh, of other stakeholders as well. Yeah, well, that, that comes on nicely uh, to some of my, my next questions in terms of multi-stakeholder initiatives yeah. here and, and their effectiveness. Because one of the, the, the kind of the, the most interesting things to come out from um, you know, the most interesting sort of new kind of global governance mechanism is, is the Bangladesh Accord. Yes. So I was wondering if you could um, tell me a bit more about that. What makes the Accord different from our sort of traditional focus on these private voluntary mechanisms right. and how is it different from, you know, maybe even just you know, traditional forms of governance at the national level as well. Right. So the Bangladesh Accord is a pretty um, fascinating experiment that I think is really at the frontier of a meaningful response to the problem of labor compliance and, and labor standards and global supply chains. This was an initiative that um, 
actually grew out of years of organizing um, by groups in both the global north and south around a real crisis in worker health and safety in, in Bangladesh. The Rana Plaza collapse made headlines because you know over uh, 1,100 people died in that factory collapse, and over 2,000 were wounded. Some of them, uh, some of them injured quite you know quite seriously. But it was actually you know only the most dramatic of a series of fatal industrial disasters that had happened in the Bangladesh garment industry going back really um, to the early mid 2000s, where you had a series of you know factory fires and building collapses that killed hundreds of workers even before Rana. So these were issues that folks had been organizing around. Um, and after Rana Plaza, largely because of the degree um, of media attention that that received, uh, the brands that were sourcing out of Bangladesh, and that's most of the big brands, really, I think, perceived that they had to respond. That this, the, the magnitude of the crisis was such that they really had to, um, to do something different mm -hmm. from what they'd been doing in Bangladesh. And so the accord, uh, was signed. And the accord is um, an agreement uh, between a set of global brands, uh, mostly European brands, but some American brands, um, and international trade union federations um, and local unions. So there are three things I think about the accord um, that make it really different from the traditional labor compliance model. Um, the first one is that it is an agreement between brands and worker organizations, between unions. So there's two global union federations, Industrial and Uniglobal Union, uh, that signed the agreement, uh, as well as Bangladeshi trade unions. Um, and therefore, those brands uh, that signed the agreement are in a kind of co-governance relationship uh, with representatives of labor. That's very different from traditional CSR-type approaches because those have been voluntary approaches by essentially lead firms or by brands um, without uh, really a, a governing role being played by the workers themselves or representatives of the workers. Um, so the fact that it is an agreement between, in a sense, capital and labor, I think is one thing that makes the accord quite, uh, quite unique and quite important. The second related, I think, difference um, is that it is a binding instrument. So the accord allows for basically commercial arbitration in the event that um, parties are not complying with their obligations. So the brands essentially under the accord commit to ensuring that all of the factories supplying them are inspected for fire, electrical, and structural safety, and that they fix whatever problems that are found in the factory um, to make them safer. And if the brands don't comply with that commitment, if, for example, they continue to source from a factory that isn't um, making necessary um, repairs to the factory, uh, or if they, um, you know, don't uh, push the factory to be inspected, you know, to allow inspections in the first place, the labor co-signatories can essentially, um, that's actionable, right, mm -hmm. sort of under the structure, the legal structure of the, of the agreement, of the accord. So that's, again, a, really a new standard um, that has kind of raised the bar uh, around this conversation. The third element of the accord that I think makes it unique and really important is the degree of transparency um, with regard to the information that anybody can get. There's a website, the accord has a website where you can go and basically look at the status of every factory that is supplying accord signatory brands and sort of see where it is in this process, right? What were the findings around fire, electrical and structural safety? 
um, that were identified in the inspection process and where are you know where's the where is the process in terms of repairing or remediating or you know in some ways addressing those problems so this level of um, information about both the kinds of hazards that were identified and what's being done about them um, is something that makes the accord pretty unique mm -hmm. now to be clear the accord is really an instrument that was created to address the crisis in health and safety and so it's uh, really addressing that particular set of issues. So there's a, a lot of you know, concerns in Bangladesh that the accord is not necessarily sort of able directly to address uh, concerns around you know, non-health and safety related working conditions um, or wages or hours. Um, but these three elements, I think, the co-governance with labor, the, um, the binding, the legally binding nature of the agreement um, and enforceability of it, and the degree of transparency um, I think these are three elements of the accord that hopefully, you know, will um, be taken forward to a variety of other sorts of initiatives in other countries and hopefully possibly also to other kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. so, you, so you mentioned that the, the, the co-governance between you know, capital and labor. Yeah. In terms of like the, the, the national employer associations yeah. and, the, and the sort of the national factories, are they a party to this agreement as well? And, and the national government as well? Right. What sort of role So that's a really great question. Um, there's a pretty powerful industry association in Bangladesh called the, um, the BGMEA, the Bangladesh Garment Manufacturers and Exporters Association. Um, and the BGMEA has played a pretty key role um, in the promotion of the Bangladesh export uh, industry historically. Um, and it has a very close relationship to the Bangladesh government. So sometimes, you know, academics talk about a state capture. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea here is that you have really powerful interests in the private sector um, that have such a close relationship with the government that in effect the government is, you know, sort of regulating around sort of the interests and prerogatives of those private sector actors. And this is, you know, Bangladesh is perhaps the classic case of, uh, of regulatory capture mm -hmm. um, because the... You know, the garment industry has been such an important source of, of export earnings in a context where there's very little um, industrial diversification um, and a really, really important source of employment, um, particularly for women in a context where there, again, aren't a lot of other um, alternatives in the formal labor market. Um, so partly, I think, because of the industry's outsized importance for the national economy and partly because certain individuals that own factories uh, are either also in uh, the parliament or are parts of, you know, are, are uh, family members of those who are, there has been a tendency not to um, look very closely at what's going on in the garment industry from a kind of labor standards point of view um, and not to enforce laws on the books, right? So I think one of the sometimes misunderstandings about a situation like Bangladesh is, you know, folks will say, well, this is a poor country. You can't expect a poor country to have the same standards as a rich country, right? But the issue in Bangladesh wasn't the law in the books. The building code itself was actually, um, you know, quite, quite good. The issue was that it wasn't enforced, right? And so there just simply was a kind of failure to uh, enforce domestic law. Um, and what the accord is trying to do is sort of create a context in which the government becomes more responsive mm -hmm. um, to essentially its own its own laws. The in, the agreement itself you raise, raise a really important point. The agreement itself does not have the participation of either the Bangladesh government or of 
the BGMEA, mm-hmm. the actual industry association itself. Um, and I think that that, you know, is something that reflects the, uh, the feeling on the part of the Accords architects that, um, you know, that it was going to be difficult, right, to sort of get um, the government, and particularly the industry, perhaps, kind of behind this effort initially. Um, now, of course, there's a really critical set of questions about where we are. Basically, we're kind of five years in. Um, to this experiment. And the accord was set up as a kind of um, time-bound agreement, Mm -hmm. right? It was supposed to expire in in five years. It's been extended. There's sort of a new accord um, on the grounds, both that there is work remaining to be done with regard to um, building safety, but also that, you know, the government might not be ready fully to assume kind of the responsibilities because it's, you know, partly there was a lack of will maybe to enforce um, compliance with both domestic sort of standards and international standards, but also um, maybe a lack of capacity. And so partly what uh, the Bangladesh government has been sort of doing with support from the ILO is building up, for example, um, its labor inspectorate. So mm-hmm. they're just going to have more people, right, with the kind of training and the resources that they need, it's simple things like cars to get around, right, to sort of visit different factories that they'll be able to assume some of the work, the important work that the Accord, uh, the Accord is doing. Mm-hmm. There's uh, also a separate set of reforms that are going on in, in Bangladesh. There was something called the Sustainability Compact that was signed after Rana Plaza, and that was sort of an agreement between the European Union in particular and the Bangladesh government um, that laid out a series of reforms on the public governance side mm. that uh, were supposed to address the situation um, in uh, in. Bangladesh uh, factories. And those reforms include things like changes to the Bangladesh labor law to uh, bring Bangladesh closer into compliance with international standards around freedom of association, um, creating um, a better sort of registry of factories and establishments so that the government sort of knows how many are out there and and, uh, enable them to kind of keep better records about the inspection process. Um, I think most of us who have been looking at the Bangladesh context feel that the public governance reforms have not been kind of coming along um, at quite the same pace mm-hmm. that um, that the factory, the private sort of sector, in a sense, um, factory inspection programs have. Um, and so I think one really critical question going forward is, how do we ensure that all of the success that, um, or all the progress that's been made since Rana Plaza uh, is in fact sustained? Eventually, presumably, um, the accord itself as, a, as an organization will sort of cease to operate. Um, and so it's really critical over the next couple of years that, um, that the infrastructure that's needed to ensure that those, uh, that those gains that have been made are sustained, right, is being put in place. Right. So you seem quite optimistic about its, its future as a... I mean, I'm optimistic in the sense that I think, um, I think 10 years ago, something like the accord would have been unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because of uh, what I described as the kind of co-governance, co-governance structure mm-hmm. and um, the enforceability of the agreement, but also because it requires lead firms, brands to collaborate among themselves, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, there's been historically a little bit of reticence to, to do that, right? Um, you know, a sense that, you know, this is my supply chain. And I don't necessarily want to, you know, collaborate with other, you know, big brands around these questions of how we should be, you know, trying to get traction on these issues, um, so, you know, in the sense that the Accord has sort of broken down some of the barriers, I think, um, to collaboration, uh, both between, in a sense, you know, 
the lead firms and the unions, but also among the lead firms themselves. Mm. I think that's pretty exciting. And I think that the, um, you know, these, the ways in which the Accord is sort of pushing the frontier um, of labor standards beyond the kind of voluntary sort of CSR um, approach is really, really exciting. You know, that said, it's a pretty perilous time, um, you know, in terms of ensuring that those gains, as I said, are secured. Um, and so I think there's cause for a very guarded optimism um, at this point. Um, at the same time, you know, one has to realize that the Bangladesh case was um, quite exceptional, right? I mean, it took it took a massive, massive tragedy to precipitate this kind of response. Um, and, you know, it shouldn't take 1,100 workers dying um, to address and take seriously these kinds of uh, labor standards problems. Mm. So, you, so you said it, it, 10 years ago you would never have imagined that the Bangladesh yeah. Accord could have been established. Would you say maybe in 10 years' time that we're likely to see similar models of governance perhaps in other industrial sectors? Um, I, think, I think it's not impossible um, it's not clear to me right now precisely what that would look like. Um, I think that there are a number of really interesting and exciting experiments going on around kind of supply chain governance in various ways. So I think what we, you know, what we are seeing is an increased recognition that in a lot of supply chains, you have dynamics where the, what we would call kind of the lead firm or the client firm, uh, the one that is subcontracting production of, of some kind, um, in a sense through its business practices or commercial terms is playing a big role in setting the terms and conditions uh, of work for workers farther down the supply chain, right? So in this case, you know, it raises really important questions about um, the nature of the employment relationship Mm -hmm. and how you can kind of get traction in that sort of context. Across a bunch of different industries and a bunch of different countries, um, we are seeing various kinds of initiatives to try to grapple with that. Um, and to address this rock and hard place problem, right? That, that we have a certain expectation or a certain idea about what uh, standards should be. And at the same time, we have direct employers that are often the suppliers, right, to these lead firms being put in a condition where um, they might really struggle to comply with those standards and at the same time remain competitive, right, in that supply chain context. Um, whether or not that will be something that can be implemented at a global level um, as opposed to in particular supply chains um, or at the sectoral level, I think is a question that sort of remains open. One of the interesting arguments I think that critics of the Accord made, um, or skeptics, I should say, of the Accord made in Bangladesh is that Bangladesh was sort of being held to a different standard and that there are other countries where there are pervasive labor violations in apparel factories um, and other you know, workplace disasters, perhaps not on the scale of Rana Plaza, um, but, you know, other countries where factory fires, for example, are not uncommon, and they weren't being asked to, um, you know, to undergo the same level of scrutiny. They weren't being asked to make the same level of, you know, investment in upgrading sort of the infrastructure of the industry to better ensure worker health and safety. And I think that that's an argument that, you know, is not without some merit. Right? Mm-hmm. On the one hand, of course, you know, um, no other country had quite the crisis that Bangladesh had. And so, you know, they were singled out in that sense for very good reason. On the other hand, it's true that Bangladesh is competing with, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, Myanmar, 
Ethiopia now as a kind of an emerging frontier for apparel production. And from their perspective, you know, the question is how do you create, um, in a sense, a level playing field uh, around these issues? Ultimately, presumably to get at that issue, you, you would need, you know, some sort of approach or some sort of, um, some sorts of, some sort of program with a kind of more global reach. Um, at this point, though, I think the Accord is a really sort of promising start um, that is generating a lot of um, discussion about how the lessons from it can be taken forward. Just the last question, which is slightly, uh, slightly off topic from what we've been discussing already, is, 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 is one thing that I've been particularly interested in recently is about you know, the role of us as academics in doing yeah. research and issues to do something that's a, a very emotive, that carries an emotive response to it, yeah. labour standards here where we're often speaking to workers on the front line of, of these poor conditions of work who are having to, uh, you know, live through these exploitative labour practices. And just interesting in what you think, uh, what you see as the role of, of academics in, in these kind of contexts here. What, what should our role be in terms of highlighting these issues or, um, you know, framing these issues in particular ways? Yeah, that's a great question. I, mean, I think one role that academics, not only academics, but one role that academics can play is in fact, um, you know, bringing the voices of those who are, you know, in these supply chains, um, you know, to, uh, to these conversations, right? So, you know, workers actually have a pretty good sense of, um, of what their, you know, experience of work is like. They have a particular perspective on how, you know, supply chains you know, kind of operate. And so I think one role that academics already are, are playing in terms of the research that, that they're doing um, on the ground and also NGOs are playing, right, is simply kind of bringing workers' voices into the conversation mm-hmm. um, in a way that, um, you know, sort of deals with some of the issues around kind of language and accessibility that, um, that, might, um, that might be there. I think another key role that academics can play is um, bringing more information to consumers. We talked about the importance of, uh, of consumers sort of knowing more. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I personally am skeptical that, um, you know, kind of a consumer-oriented approach to this is going to be a sufficient condition to really address the problem. But there is a role for consumers to play. Certainly, there's a role for policymakers to play. Um, and I think that academics have, in a sense, kind of the luxury of trying to look in a holistic way um, at supply chains, right? Um, you know, academics are not the managers of corporate social responsibility that have a particular set of concerns. They're not the heads of the sourcing department, right, at these retailers that, again, have a particular set of concerns. Um, they're not the trade union reps, right, that have a particular set of, of concerns. So what academics can do is, in a sense, kind of step back and try to put together the different pieces of the puzzle, um, the different links in the chain, and try to look at the ways in which different stakeholders um, are, you know, both potentially part of the problem, but also potentially part of the solution. Um, and so I think that's one of the, one of the advantages um, that academics have is the ability, in a sense, to, to try to take multiple perspectives mm-hmm. um, on these problems and see things perhaps in a somewhat more holistic way than stakeholders themselves might, um, just by virtue of kind of where they tend to be in the chain and what their orientation tends to be. Great. Jennifer, thanks very much for coming in today and uh, for discussing your research. Very interesting. Thanks so much. Thank you.